morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Um, this morning we're going to look at John 3.16 in context. Now, John 3.16 is probably no doubt one of the best known verses in the Bible. People who aren't Christians, people who don't know anything about the Bible, they know about John 3.16. This is the verse you often see displayed at sporting events or whatever, someone, you know, holding up the sign. We've seen Jeff do that several times on video here at conferences and poke through the curtains and hold up a John 3.16 sign. But it's almost always used without any reference to its context. It's just pulled out of there, and that's all we know, okay? It's a text that really has been, uh, there's been quite a bit of theological and exegetical disputing over. So we're going to just do this verse this morning and see if we can break it down and and try to truly understand what's being said here. Uh, Martin Luther called John 3.16 the miniature gospel. And he said it was a text in which contained the whole Bible. I don't know if I agree with that, but that's what Luther said. Spurgeon said that he preached on John 3.16 once a year. Uh, He just thought it was an important text. He wanted to keep that before his people. Now, before we look at this very familiar verse, let's just back up a little bit in the text so we can you know, get the context. We've been working through this, so hopefully you have some idea of the context here. Yeshua is having a conversation with Nicodemus, who is a high-ranking Jewish official. Yeshua tells Nicodemus that in order to see or enter the kingdom of God, he had to be born from above. Now, this seemed to confuse Nicodemus. So Yeshua reworded it in a way that Nicodemus should have grasped, because that's the purpose of rewording it this way. He said, oh, Nicodemus will get this. He said, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. Now, being born of water and the Spirit is just a different way of saying being born from above. So Yeshua tells Nicodemus that no longer is being in covenant with God a question of being born into the physical nation of Israel or being a child of Abraham but you had to be born from above through the action of the Holy Spirit. Now, to this teaching, Nicodemus responds, how can these things be? I just don't get it. He had for years taught others that the condition of entrance into the kingdom of God was being born a Jew and living an obedient life. Now, here comes Yeshua talking about this need for a new birth. In verse 13, he says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now the implication here is that no one has both ascended into heaven to receive divine revelation and to descend to earth to give an account of that revelation in the same way that Yeshua has as the incarnate Word of God. In other words, Nicodemus, you better grasp what Yeshua is saying. He has come down from heaven. Then Yeshua uses an illustration from the life of Israel that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now he's talking here about the incident in Numbers 21, where the children of Israel, you know, griping as they normally are, uh, griping against God, griping against Moses, so he sends these serpents, these adders, and they bite people and people are dying. And then they cry out for help, you know, they get in trouble, now we like God. Now we're, okay, what do we have to do? And he told Moses to make this serpent. And verse 9 says, And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a standard. Just, this is the way God told him to do it. And it came about that if, if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now that's kind of interesting. All you had to do was be bitten and look to the serpent. You had to realize that what God said about this was true. You had to have faith in what Yahweh said and look to the serpent and be delivered. It was provision that he made. You know, and, and Israel's healing is an illustration of the salvation that Yahweh is about to accomplish through his only begotten son. Moses lifted up the serpent on a pole so all who were afflicted in the camp might look and live. In the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And when he talks about lifted up, he's using lifted up in a double sense. Lifted up is a reference to the cross, being nailed to the cross, but it's also a reference to being glorified. John does that a lot. He uses it, Lazarus through this text. He keeps saying, using double references. So to be lifted up, crucified and glorified, so that all who look to him in faith may live. He says, this is what salvation's like. It's just simply looking to the Lord, trusting him. And he says, whosoever believes, that, that's it. 
Just like they did, you just have to believe and you'll have eternal life. The bronze serpent in the wilderness was the salvation or deliverance of those who believed. By comparing yourself to that serpent, Yeshua was teaching that whoever trusted Him, whoever trusted His death, would receive eternal life. Now, verses 14 and 15 are really answering Nicodemus' question of verse 9. All right, He asks, how can these things be? And Yeshua answers them. He's telling him a person's regeneration by the Spirit can only come about because of the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of the Son of Man. This is how this can happen. This is how this can be. Because the Lord has provided a way for this to happen. That's how it can be. Now, before we look at verse 16, which flows right into this context here, let me say the scholars, and I, I brought this up before, but scholars question if this text is something that Yeshua said to Nicodemus or it's something that Lazarus added. I don't mean added apart from the Lord, but I mean these are just words of Lazarus. Now, this is from my Bible, and so it's easy for me to answer the question because the words are in red, so I know they're the Lord's, right? I mean, that's, you know, all you have to do is get a red-letter Bible and it'll take all the questions away, okay? <laughs> now, remember I told you in the past that it's very difficult in many places in the fourth gospel to make the transition from our Lord's Word to Lazarus' words. And here it's difficult to know where the transition is. We don't know where the Lord starts talking and where, you know, uh, to Nicodemus and where Lazarus picks it up. Of course, unless you have a red-letter Bible, then you know. All right? So then you're on top of things. The Pillar New Testament Commentary says this. In two passages in this Gospel, both in this chapter, 3, 15-21, and 3, 31-36, the words of a speaker, Jesus and John the Baptist, respectively, are succeeded by the explanatory reflections of the evangelists. So he says, this is Lazarus talking here, because the ancient text did not use quotation marks or other orthographical equivalents, the exact point of transition is disputed. We don't really know where one stops and where the other begins. In the first incident, Nicholas thinks the dialogue ends at verse 10, with all of verses 11 through 21 being comment of the evangelists. Now, he says, this is unlikely. The title, Son of Man, is so characteristically reserved for Jesus' lips as a form of self-identification that it's unthinkable that he ended before verse 15. So even, you know, there's a lot of disagreement. Where does it stop? Where does it start? I think there's a couple of good reasons to think that verses 16, our famous verse in John 3, 16, through 21, are Lazarus' words. One of the reasons is the tenses in verse 19 the tenses of the verbs are written from Lazarus' standpoint, not from Yeshua's standpoint, in the interview with Nicodemus. Let's look at verse 19. He says, This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. Now, he says, Men love darkness, their deeds were evil. That's past tense. If this were still Yeshua's words to Nicodemus, you would expect that those things would be in the present tense. But Lazarus, writing from a vantage point of many years afterwards, naturally uses the past tense. Now, another reason to see the author of these verses as Lazarus is because Yeshua is called the only begotten Son. And we have no record anywhere of the Lord using this term of Himself. But it's a favorite term of Lazarus. So I think it's best to see that the interview with you, between Yeshua and Nicodemus has ceased and Lazarus is now filling in more details for us. Now, Please understand that whether these are the words of Yeshua or these are the words of Lazarus, they're just as inspired, all right? I mean, I know people, I've heard of people, and I don't personally know them, but I've read about people who just believe what's in the red letters in their Bible. Those are the words of the Lord, that's what's important, nothing else matters. I'm like, that is so foolish and so not understanding anything about inspiration. The whole Bible is inspired by God. So these are the words of the Holy Spirit, whether Lazarus is giving them or Yeshua is giving them, they're still just as inspired. And that's So really, what I guess I'm saying is, it doesn't matter whose words they are, okay? <laughs> they're the Lord's words, alright? Now, I want you to notice the similarity between John 3.16 and this text, in Romans 8.32 that Paul wrote. He, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? 
The similarity between the two texts is that they both speak of the purpose of the Son's coming. They speak of the intent of His coming, and they speak of the love of God in the gift of His Son as its results. And those whom Christ died have the blessing of life as well. He didn't spare His own Son. He gave His only begotten. He says they'll have eternal life. He freely gives them all things. Now, as we look at John 3.16, there's three important clauses in this verse. One of them is a compound clause. All right, in the first, we have the act. All right, God loved the world. Then we have the result. God gave His only begotten Son. And then we have the purpose, negatively, that men should not perish, but positively, that their believers would have eternal life. Now, let's look at the first clause. For God so loved the world. He starts the verse with gar, which is translated here as four. And when you see four like this, you've got to kind of look back because it's connecting it to something. So you want to look back and see what it's connected to. And then you have the word so. So these two words, for so, are rendering of a two-word combination in the Greek text, which occurs nine times in the New Testament. And none of these occurrences can or should be rendered in a way of so much. You know, people want to translate, for God loved the world so much. Well, that's not what it's saying here. It's probably better rendered in this way. In other words, this is how He loved. Or this is the way. Or something similar. And we see that in the NET Bible. It says, for this is the way God loved the world. How did He love it? He gave His Son. That's how He loved it. He gave His Son. So based on the consistent use of this expression in the New Testament, I believe that we should understand John 3.16 the way the NAT Bible here translates it. So the expression for in this way points back to something previously stated. The for so here is giving a reason for Yahweh's provision for sinful dying man in the previous verses. Now we looked at these 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, here's the same combination, in that same way, must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Now in hearing these, you're going to ask, why would He do that for wretched people? I mean, why these sinners, you know, why did God provide something for their snake bite? And why would God provide for wretched sinners And John 3.16 is the answer. Because God loved. That's the only explanation, people. There's nothing in us. It's not like He said, you know, they're really wonderful people. No! We're wretched sinners. We were His enemies, but it's because of His great love. He loved the world. That's the explanation. Why He sent His Son to die for sinful men. It's His love. So, or in this way, expresses method not emotion. It's not like God just felt really good, so i got to do this. I'm overcome by this feeling with them. No, He demonstrated His love. He proved it by giving, by sending His Son to die on mankind's behalf. Now, our text says, for God so loved the world. Who is this God that loves the world? The Anglo-Saxon word God means the invoked one. The English word God is very nebulous. People use it all the time. And when I hear it, I think, what God? Who's God? It really doesn't tell us anything, you know, when we see the word God about the one that we love and serve. So who loved the world and gave his son? Is it Toth? The Egyptian God of magic? No, I don't think it's that God. See, in deism, God is the creator of the universe who wound it up, created the universe, and then he just let it go and he left. That's the God of deism. In pantheism, God is everywhere. He's in the trees, he's in the rocks, he's, you know. When referring to God, a follower of the New Age is talking about a transcendent personal God who created the universe. That's not who they're talking about. They're referring to a higher consciousness within themselves. The New Age. Muslims believe that there's one almighty God named Allah. All right? It was infinitely superior to all and transcendent to hu- from humankind. Hindus acknowledge multitudes of gods and goddesses. But everybody used that term God. Now in the Greek, the word God is a translation of the word theos. 
And I brought this out before, but theos, again, is just a nebulous term. It doesn't tell us anything. It means mighty one. And it can refer to any person, man, or deity. The context determines the meaning. Alright? Assuming the word always refers to deity is an error. Since the Greek referred to many with authority as theos. I mean, they'll use it for mighty people, you know, man, a leader, whatever they call them, theos. And now, in the Septuagint, when they translate the words El, Elohim, and Yahweh, they translate them as theos. So, and many times they mistranslate Yahweh as theos. The closest Hebrew equivalent to Mighty One or Theos would be Elohim. Anyway, my point is that Elohim, like Theos, is used for many different spiritual entities and is therefore is not a good substitute for Yahweh. It's Yahweh, the creator and stainer of the universe who loved the world. It's Him. It's not any other gods, not any other deity. It is Yahweh. The Yahweh of the Bible is a Trinitarian God. He's a God who's the Father of our Lord Yeshua the Christ, and who the Son and the Spirit, they form the triune God. When we talk about God loving the world, we're talking about Yahweh loving the world. We are told that Yahweh so loved the world. Here we see that the object of Yahweh's love is the world. And then we have to ask, what's the world? I mean, you know, it's a common view of our day that when the Bible says... Um, for God so loved the world that it means that He loved every individual in the world equally, without exception, without distinction. That's a common view. Every individual, past, present, and future, are all loved in the precise same way. Now that's a common view, but it's not taught in the Bible. Now, before you get upset with me, because, you know, people get upset when you start saying stuff. God doesn't love everybody. They get all mad and they, you know, they want to have a fit. Let me just, before you get upset, answer this question. Where does it say in the Bible that God loves everybody? You say, well, right there, John 3.16. That's not really what it says. It says he loves the world. We have, we still haven't defined what the world is. Where does it say he loves every individual? Listen, without exception, without distinction. Can you give me a text? Well, while you're thinking about that, let me give you a text, okay? Just as it's written, Jacob, I love Esau, I've hated. Oh, well, he loves the world, but he hates Esau. So Esau was not part of the world? How's that work out? You know, you might look at that text and say, I don't like that text. <laughs> and you could say that, or you might say, I really don't understand what that text is saying. You can say that. But you should never say once you read this verse that God loves every individual with equally, without exception, without distinction. Because you got a guy here that he doesn't. And I think nothing can be more clearly manifest the strong opposition of the human mind to the doctrine of divine sovereignty than the violence which human ingenuity has employed to twist this expression, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Some say that Paul is talking here about the election of a nation as over against nations. You know, not the election of individuals. And I'm like, does that argument really stand for you? It seems kind of foolish. If it's unjust for God to choose individuals, how is it okay for Him to choose nations? Aren't nations made up of individuals? So how does that work out any better? Now some try to twist this text by saying that Well, hate doesn't mean hate, but it means to love less or regard or treat with less favor. Now, hate is used that way sometimes in the Scripture. For example, in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So hate would have the idea here of regard with less favor. But in the original context of Malachi that Paul's quoting from, Loving less doesn't really fit with the visitation of judgment that we see in Malachi. He says in Malachi, But I've hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for jackals of the wilderness. Does that sound like, I just love him a little less. No, it's destruction. He says, Though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. 
Thus says Yahweh of hosts, they may build, but I'll tear it down. Men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom Yahweh is indignant forever. Now the quotation of Paul from Malachi 1, 2, and 3 in Romans 9, 13 is for the purpose of confirming what he just quoted from Genesis 25, which points to the discrimination that existed before the children were ever born. He said before they ever done good or evil, God said this. So it wasn't it had nothing to do with their works. It was the choice of God. Listen, the love of God is the root of election. He chooses because He loves. Now God is sovereign in the exercise of His love. What I mean is that He loves who He wants to love. That makes people mad. How dare Him? How dare God choose who He wants to love and not love? Now I know that when I say that, you know, people get upset, but I think it's clearly what the Word of God teaches. He chooses who He will love because He's sovereign in that. He didn't love Esau. That's clear. Now, how will you argue? Well, you say that He loves everybody but Esau. Esau is the one exception. Okay? You know, one of the most popular beliefs of our day, and based on this verse in John 3.16, is that God loves everybody. He just loves everybody. You know? And he just wants them all to come to him, but he just can't do anything about it. He's just frustrated up there in heaven because I wish I could save them. I just can't, you know, they won't come to me. You know that the idea that God loves everybody is a modern belief? You can look through the writings of the church fathers, the reformers, the Puritans. You can search in vain to find such a concept as God loves everybody. In fact, that the love of God is a truth for the saints only. And with the exception of John 3.16, not once in the four Gospels do we read of the Lord Yeshua telling sinners that God loves them. He doesn't tell them that. You don't find anybody telling them that. Matter of fact, this is what's interesting. In the book of Acts, which is recording the evangelistic labors of the apostles, the love of God is never mentioned in the book of Acts. You're trying to win these people. You're out there preaching the Gospel, trying to win these people, and you don't even mention the love of God? That seems a little crazy. But when we come to the epistles, which are addressed to the saints, then we have a full presentation of the truth. Look at Hebrews 12.6. For those whom Yahweh loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. God's love is restricted to the members of His own family. If He loves all men, then the distinction and the limitation here mentioned is really meaningless. God only chastens whom He loves. But he loves everybody, so he must chase everybody. No, this is a reference to believers, the family of God. He chastens his own children. He doesn't chasten anybody else's children. So you really can't use John 3.16 to teach that God loves everybody because the Bible clearly teaches that he didn't love Esau. You've got to admit that. Let's put it in the form of a syllogism. Major premise, God hated Esau. Everybody agree with that? That's kind of, it's hard to disagree with that. The Bible says that, okay? Minor premise, Esau's part of the world. Do you agree with that? I'd say he's, I mean, he's got to be part of the world. So what's the conclusion? God doesn't love everyone in the world. All right? If it were true that God loved everybody equally, without distinction, without exception, how can Yeshua say with reference to his disciples, I'm praying for them? Talking about his disciples, I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world. What? Well, if God loved everyone, why wouldn't Yeshua be praying for everybody? He would if God loved everybody. So what does the Bible teach about this term world? Well, the word world is from the Greek cosmos. Now, if you look up all Lazarus' uses of cosmos, you will see that he used the term in some different senses. Here it's simply a term for humanity. God loves humanity. Now, one commentator writes, cosmos must, in context, refer to the entire world. Oh, I don't think so. Because we already saw that it isn't true. He doesn't love Esau, so how can it fit the entire world? The word world or cosmos often has a relative rather than an absolute meaning. For example, John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said, and the Pharisees are talking, said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Was everyone in the world going after Yeshua? No, that's clear, right? Everybody equally, without distinction, without exception, going after Christ. No, the Pharisees are speaking here. They didn't follow Him. So it's obvious the term world, in certain contexts, 
cannot mean everybody. Look at Acts 19.27. Not only is there danger that our, the trade of ours falls into this dispute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, or Diana in some translations, be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worships. Did everybody in the world worship Diana or Artemis? No, believers didn't worship her, and there were plenty of other non-believers that didn't even worship her. Romans 8.1, First, I thank my God through Yeshua the Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Was everybody in the world talking about the Roman Christians? I don't think so. So what does world mean in our context? What's he saying when he says God loved the world? Well, again, let's think about context. Who's he talking to? Nicodemus, right? A Jew. The Jews believed that God loved only them. That was their belief. God loves only... He doesn't love those Gentiles. And the Lord has told them stuff like that. You know, he says, you only have I loved of all the nations on the earth. So they had a reason for believing that, right? They're like, hey, we're special people. He just loves us. And Nicodemus had the idea that when the Messiah came, he would come and give the kingdom to the Jews and he would smite the Gentiles with judgment. That was their doctrine. The Jews would be saved. Everybody connected with Abraham would be saved, but Gentiles would be judged. This is why the prophet Jonah, when God sent him to Ninevites, he said, I'm getting out of here. I'm taking a, you know, I'm taking a boat. I'm... <laughs> He's going to take a boat and run away from God, okay? Because, listen, one of their beliefs was God's were territorial. Yahweh's territory was Jerusalem, Judea, so he took a boat and left. I'll get away from God. God said, well, I'm a little bigger than you might think I am, and no, you're not going to get away. Why did he want Ninevites to be saved? There were Gentiles. He hated Gentiles. He did everything he could to avoid preaching the gospel to them. Remember when Peter went to the home of Cornelius and preached the gospel there? The other apostles and church leaders got upset with them. What are you doing going to Gentiles? We don't care about those people. According to one commentator, no Jewish writer specifically asserted that God loved his world. They just didn't believe that. It was them. So this is kind of radical to, to hear that God loves the world. And what John 3.16 is saying in context is God's love is international in scope. He loves Gentiles as well as Jews. That should cause you to say amen. Okay, you should be really glad of that. All right. When Lazarus says, for God so loved the world, he's saying his love is enough to embrace not simply Israel, but the Gentiles as well. Look at John 6, 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. He didn't say offers life. He said gives life. It, it implies acceptance. Now, did Christ give life to everyone? No, the world is limited here to his people, his elect, Jew and Gentile alike. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Yeshua, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loves those who belong to him. God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. Why? Because he's sovereign in the exercise of his love. Do you know there were two rebellions that took place? Angels and men. And God provided redemption only for men. There's no redemption for angels. The Bible's full of distinguishing love. God is sovereign in the exercise of his love. I've never heard anybody get mad about how, how dare God not provide salvation for the fallen angels. I've never heard anybody argue that. What, they don't care about angels? They just care about humans? God is sovereign. But see, the problem is, we're so man-centered, even in our theology, that if it doesn't start with us, we can't grasp it. We think it's unfair for God to choose some individual, not others. And we need to allow the Scripture to shape our thinking so we can have the mind of Christ. God's sovereign, even in His love. Now, God does love the world. And a lot of people argue from this perspective. Well, well, God loves the world in a, in a common grace love in the sense that He gives you know, rain to the just and the unjust. The sun shines. and you, Your next door neighbor who might be a pagan, he, he, you know, his garden grows and he gets to eat the fruit of it. He's got a wife that loves him and he enjoys married life. You know, he enjoys the sunshine and the rain. And it, he enjoys all these things. That's called common grace. But in this text, He's not talking about common grace. 
Because he's talking about the giving of his son. That's not common grace. Alright? That's the love he's talking about. This is the redemptive love of his people. So yes, there are different aspects of love when you look at it like that. But this is very specific in this text. And we'll look at that in a second. He loved the world, it says. This is agapao. It's not used much in classical Greek. The early church kind of took it and filled it with specific meaning. The word loved is a word that expresses the nature of God's love. It's an eternal, immutable love. In other words, if ever he loved you, he loved you forever. He doesn't love you and then, oh, he stopped loving me, now I'm not, you know. That's why Calvinism has the tulip and Arminianism has the daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me. No, he loves you, he loves you forever. It begins in eternity when God elected people to be his own. Because he loved, he elected and it culminates in him bringing in us into the family of God. Now, the word loved here in this text is past tense. The Greek verb is in the aorist tense, indicating a specific act at a particular point in time. It doesn't say God loves, present tense, the world. And I believe the reason for this is because we're to understand that God has manifested his love for the world in a particular way. He loved the world, how? Through his son. Through His Son, Yeshua. He loved by sending His Son. And see, that's what we have to understand about love. Love is is a verb because it's action. You do something. You don't just sit around and feel something. You know, doesn't John 3.16, God just had such a good feeling about humanity that He just sat around and said, oh, they're wonderful people. No. He, He loved and so He gave. Love gives. When you really love somebody, you give. He loved the world by sending His Son. Now the next clause shows us the result of His love. We have the act, for God so loved the world, and then we have the result that He gave His only begotten Son. Now the words only begotten here from the Greek word monogenes. The use of the word only begotten is important because it's only used five times in the New Testament of Christ as the Son of God. It's used only this way in the writings of Lazarus. Now, if you remember our study in Genesis 6, 1-4 through about the sons of God and daughters of men, I said son of, sons of God is used there of watchers. All right, They were sons of God. They were heavenly beings, divine beings. They're members of the divine council. So how can Lazarus say five times that Yeshua is the only begotten son when Yahweh had other sons? How could Yeshua be the only divine son when there are these other sons of God? We see it in Job also. Well, the answer is that only begotten is an unfortunate and confusing translation, especially to our modern ears. Not only does the translation only begotten seem to contradict the obvious statements in the Tanakh about other sons of God, it implies that there was a time when the son didn't exist and he came into being. He was begotten. He came into being. Well, the word monogenes doesn't mean only begotten in some sort of birthing sense. The confusion extends from an old misunderstanding of the root of the Greek word. For years, monogenes was thought to have derived from the Greek terms monos, which means only, and ganao, which means to beget or bear. Well, Greek scholars later, see, everybody's learning things, you know, as time goes on. And the more we discover, the more we learn about languages. Greek scholars later discovered that the second part of the word monogenes doesn't come from the Greek verb ganao, but rather from the noun ganos, which means class or kind. So the term literally means one of a kind. Or we could say unique. The word in the Greek was used of an only child. We see that in uh, Luke 7.12. Now as he approached the gate of the city, the dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. Only here is monogenes. And Luke uses monogenes here of the only son. He uses it also of an only daughter. The writer of Hebrews uses the word of Isaac in 11.17. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. Now, is Isaac Abraham's only son? No, but it calls him monogonese. And if you know the story, you know that he's not the only begotten son. Abraham had earlier fathered Ishmael. But the term must mean that Isaac was Abraham's unique son. He was the son of the covenant promise. Isaac's genealogical line would be the one through which the Messiah would come. And just as Yahweh is an Elohim, and no other Elohim are like Yahweh, 
So Yeshua is a unique son, and there's no other sons like him. So monogonase means one of a kind, or unique, the only of its kind. There's no other son of God who is the son of God in the same way that Yeshua is the son of God, only him. All other sons of God referred to in Scripture are either created or adopted. Because guess what? We are called sons of God. Because that's what we are. We've been adopted into the family of God and we're now His children. He says that He loved so much that He gave, God gave His only begotten Son. You know, people have a, this crazy idea that because God is love, He just says, forget about all your sin, forget about all your transgression, come on. I'm just going to love you, I'm going to overlook it. Like some negligent parent who just lets their child do whatever. You know, that's not it. He doesn't save arbitrarily. God is holy, God is righteous, He is just, and His holiness and His justice have to be satisfied. His broken law demands a penalty. Look at Romans 6, or 3.26, it says, For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness. So God is demonstrating that He's righteous at the present time so that He would be just, He's a just God, and a justifier of the one who has faith in Yeshua. God's righteousness would dictate that He pour out His wrath on guilty sinners. That would be righteous because He's a righteous God. And He's a just God. But God is going to justify the ungodly. And then someone, namely Yeshua, had to bear the wrath so God could justify them. And that's why the word in in the previous verse here in Romans uh, talks about propitiation. Christ bore the wrath of God for our sins. And He turned it away from us. In other words, someone had to pay. God is a just God. So He put the penalty on Yeshua. His righteousness demands judgment. And so Christ died as a sinner offering. That's why He gave His Son that whoever believeth in Him should not perish. He provided a ransom. Look at Romans 8.32, did not spare His own Son, but what He delivered Him over for us all. He was a ransom. So, who delivered up Yeshua to die? Well, Octavius Winslow, in the 19th century, wrote this. He says, not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. That's who turned him over. That's why he was delivered up. He was delivered up by the Father out of love. It was due to the initiative of the Father. The Father willed the Son's death for the benefit of the elect. Look at Isaiah 53.10. But Yahweh was pleased to crush Him. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? This is only because of His loved Son. You know, when you think about this, you think, you know, can you imagine someone coming to you and saying, you know, these people are my enemies. They, They do everything against me. They hate me. They despise me. But I I love them, so I'm going to take my Son... And I'm going to put my son to death for them so I can have a relationship with them. It pleased the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. It was the Father's intention from the beginning that the promise of Abraham, all the nations that would be blessed, would be fulfilled through the death of His own Son. So we have the act. God loved the world. We have the result. God gave. And now we have the purpose of that, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. These two aspects are stressed. They're they're put in two different tenses in the Greek. That He should not perish, that's an event. But have, that's present tense, an enduring, having eternal life. Well, let's look at the first one, that is negative. It's not really doesn't sound too negative that you don't perish, but you know, it's the negative aspect of this thing, all right? What does it say will not happen to those who believe? They won't perish. Does any of your text say they won't go to hell? I wonder why it doesn't say that. <laughs> it does none of the texts say that I've found if you believe in him you won't suffer throughout eternity. It says they won't perish. And look, it perishes the opposite of eternal life, okay? It's the opposite of life, which is death. Now, John MacArthur writes this, perish in the Greek, 
is a polemy, which is, which is much used in the New Testament of eternal ruin. Then he says this, it refers to hell. What? Where did you get that from? That's not exegetical. You've got to make that stuff up. You see that, well, you won't perish. Well, people who don't believe go to hell. So the perish must mean go to hell. How do you make that connection? See, most Christians think there's a place of eternal fire and torment called hell. Which is the ultimate fate of the wicked. But what does the Bible say about hell? Nothing. Nothing. It doesn't say anything about the word hell is not in the original language of the Bible. If you see it in your Bible, it's a bad translation. When we read a word like hell, all kinds of ideas come to my mind. You know, if you've read Dante's Inferno, then you know, well, that's, that's pretty much where all the ideas come from, all right? Yeah, you get the abode of the condemned. It's a place of eternal fiery punishment where the wicked, they don't die. They're still alive, but they're tortured the whole time. They're screaming in agony and they're crying out and they're burning, but they just keep burning forever and ever and ever. Wow, that's not a pretty, pretty picture. And the thing is, cool, that it's not a biblical picture. You know, it's not at all. I really think this is a major invention of the Catholic Church to help keep people in line. You know, you're going to hell if you don't do it. Whoa, I don't want to go to that place. And then they got even smart. Okay, your relative died. He's in purgatory. He's got to work off his sins. He could go to hell. You know, it's kind of a waiting place. We've got to determine. If you give money to them, you can shorten his time in purgatory. Now, how do you know when he gets out? You don't. You just keep giving. And they became the wealthiest organization in the world. So, you know, just good, uh, good business practices, I guess, you know. Listen, the word hell is found 31 times in the King James, the good old King James, in the Old Testament of the King James. It's translated from the Hebrew word Sheol. But nowhere do you see Sheol as a fiery place of torment. So why did the King James translators translate it that way? Well, it's because they're doing more interpretation than translation. All right? In the King James Version, New Testament, the word hell is found 23 times. It's translated from the word Hades, which is the Greek equivalent of Sheol, the place of the dead, 10 times. It's translated from the Greek word Tartaro once, and 12 times from Gehenna. Well, Gehenna was a place that had become identified in people's minds as a filthy, accursed place where useless and evil things were destroyed. It was a defiled place. It became the garbage dump outside Jerusalem. And fires were burning there all the time because they're burning up the trash. They throw dead bodies there. They're burning up. It was repulsive. You know, there was worms there feeding on the dead bodies while they throw them there to be burned up. It became a symbol of judgment. And it also became a symbol of perishing. Because if you take something and throw it into a fire, what happens to it? You say it burns forever and ever and never. No, it burns till it's gone and it's gone. You know, I build fires all the time in my fireplace and you put all this wood in there and then you got a little pile of ash. It's gone. It's, the fire goes out, but guess what? It'll never be wood again. For all eternity, it's ash. It's done. All right? Gehenna's a defiled place. So it became the garbage dump of Jerusalem. Every use of Gehenna, except for one that James uses, is from Yeshua speaking to the Jews that live in or around Jerusalem. It's never used of Gentiles and never used outside the Gospels because Gehenna was the city dump outside Jerusalem. So none of the King James uses of hell have anything to do with the fiery place of torment. So as I said earlier, the word hell shouldn't be in your Bible. And the concept of hell shouldn't be in your theology. The New American Standard has the word hell 13 times. Tradition, we just can't, you know, people don't want to break from this. It's... A, Christians love their hell, so they're going to hang on to that, okay? The, the ESV translates it 14 times. Young's literal translates it none. It's a literal translation. We're not putting that in there. It's not, it's not literal to think of a, this concept of hell, so they just didn't put it in. So to answer my original question, what's the Bible say about hell? Nothing. It doesn't say anything about hell. It's not in the original translations of the Bible. And it's a concept you just don't find in the Bible. Look at the contrast here. Perish and life. Eternal life. So perishing would be eternal perishing? Yeah. It's perishing. Those who trust in Christ don't perish. 
The Greek word perish is used literally of death. But Paul taught the same thing as Lazarus did in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Yeshua our Lord. So the wages of sin, death, it's not eternal punishing and torment in some place called hell. That's not what he says the wages is. He said it's death. In the context of Paul's dissertation in his letter to Rome, the death refers to the sentence given to Adam that was the penalty of sin. The death is the penalty. It's a punishment. Paul's message was that a life in Adam would result in the death, while a life of faith in Christ would result in everlasting life. Again, the contrast, death, eternal life, not eternal torture or eternal life. See, you know, you most Christians just believe that everybody has eternal life. Some just have eternal well, miserable life in hell, and some have eternal good life in heaven. Because they just think everybody lives forever. And that's, again, a false statement. Now, the Greek scholar and New Testament translator R.F. Weymouth wrote this. My mind fails to conceive a grosser misinterpretation of language than when the five or six strongest words which the Greek tongue possesses, signifying destroy or destruction, are explained to mean maintaining an everlasting but wretched existence. They take these words and they there's strong Greek words and no you don't really destroy you keep on going. He ends this quote by saying this. He says to translate black as white is nothing to this. <laughs> now you know you hear this stuff and you may be thinking well what about Matthew 25? You often wonder about Matthew 25. Look at it. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now. Here we have a comparison between eternal punishment and eternal life. The word eternal is the same in both cases. Eternal is from the Greek, ionios, from ion. The word eternal was used to describe, as we talked about last time, the messianic age, the age of the spirit, the kingdom of God. And because that age was thought of as never ending, the adjective came to mean everlasting or eternal. So eternal life will never end. So people argue if the righteous get eternal life that never ends, then the wicked get eternal punishment. That's true. But what does eternal punishment mean? As we saw from other scriptures, punishment is death. It's eternal. It lasts forever. Not that the punishment goes on forever. The death goes on forever. So the wicked get eternal death. It's talking about the result of an action, not the action itself. The punishment is death. That goes on. It doesn't ever change. It's eternal. You die, you're dead. All right? The destruction of the wicked in the lake of fire is permanent. It's a punishment that cannot be reversed. The act of punishing will come to an end, but the consequence lasts for eternity. So it's everlasting. You either get everlasting life or you get everlasting death. That's it. That's all there is. That's all the scriptures teach. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are saved, it's the power of God. Here are the contrast again. you got the perishing and you got the saved. Well, who are the saved? Well, he tells us, but to those who are called, those are the saved, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So that's the contrast. Perishing and being saved. The Bible teaches that the reward of believers is everlasting life, while the punishment of the wicked is just as the Scriptures state, it's death, which is the opposite of life. As the wicked will have no escape from death, it's it's an eternal punishment. It's eternal. And he says, whoever believes in him will not perish, but guess what? They get eternal life. And Lazarus defines life as eternal life. It's been the assumption, I think, of most in Christianity that eternal life means it just goes on forever. Well, that's part of it, but Lazarus, to Lazarus, I think God is the eternal one. So eternal life is more life in the presence of God. You're in His presence, you have life, because He is life. The word eternal was used to describe the messianic age, the age of the Spirit. So in that age, when you're in that kingdom of God, you have life, the life of God. Is in the soul of men. You're in his presence, you have life. 
Now it says, whosoever here. And people say, see, anybody who wants to believe can believe. I got no problem with that. Whoever believes, believes. But guess what? We already gone over that. The only one who can believe are those that God has called to himself. But whoever believes, I think he's saying here, the whoever is back to the world concept, whoever, Jew or Gentile. See, Nicodemus is not just Jews. Whoever believes, whoever puts their trust in the Son will have eternal life, Jew or Gentile. It's not restricted to one race. Believer, if you're ever doubted, to, if you're tempted to doubt the love of God, all you have to do is look at John 3.16. That's all you have to do. He gave His only begotten. All you have to do is look to Calvary. Look at His Son being butchered on a cross. Why? Because He loves you. You know, and we get tempted so easily to doubt God's love because we think if He doesn't do everything we want Him to do, then He doesn't really love us. His love is so far beyond the temporal. We heard stories this morning about pastors being beheaded today, nowadays. And we in America, were upset about the simplest things. Don't doubt the love of God. Look to Calvary. Let that be your image. You want us to understand how much He loves you. He sent His only begotten Son to die your place. So you could have life. Paul put it this way. God demonstrates His own love towards us. Now the us here, he's writing to Christians. These are believers. That's who your love is demonstrated to, the believers. And that while we were yet sinners, we didn't have to do anything, people. We were in the worst condition we could be in while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. God demonstrated His love by giving His Son. And we are called to trust in what He has done for us. This is one of the greatest verses in the Bible because it lays out that love of God and the reason for His love is because, you know, why did He, why did He save men? Why as that serpent in the wilderness? Why did He provide for those people? Because He loves and He demonstrated love by making provision for those people. In His righteousness, in His justice, He came up with a plan to bring enemies into fellowship to make them sons. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your great love for us. It, we can't comprehend it, Lord. That You would, those who are sinners, those who are Your enemies, You would send Your beloved Son to die to bring into fellowship. Father, may we understand what it means to be adopted into Your family, to be a son of God. To be joint heirs with Christ, Yeshua. Lord, we thank You. I thank you for this verse and what it teaches us. For your great love. May we always, Lord, rest in the fact that you love us as we look to Calvary. Thank you, Father. Amen.